Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix. I'm your host, Dylan Clark Moore, and today we're going to be talking about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which is currently available to stream on Netflix in Canada, and it doesn't really look like much of anywhere else. Today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios. That's London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. And the Netflix podcast is also a proud member of the Electric Streams Podcast Network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Before we get into it, I'd like to issue a couple of warnings. First of all, that this conversation will likely contain spoilers for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. As well, some of the language may not be suitable for all listeners. I don't really have any corrections to throw in here, but there is something I didn't get around to saying, so if I can figure out a way to say it, I'll tack it in at the end. Now that all the intro stuff is out of the way, let's get into it. I'm talking today with a man you've heard before, whether it was here discussing The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, or Star Wars, The Force Awakens, or maybe you've heard him on his own podcast, The Quarter Portion Podcast. Welcome once again to Chris DeHoog. Well, thanks for the emphatic welcome. Nice to be back again. Yeah. This is your first time being on talking about a movie that's not part of like an epic film saga. First time solo too, yeah. No. Uh, oh, that is too. Yeah, a little bit of a How's little it? bit of a burden. No, we'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. You, you feel all right without your, without we'll your roll. safety net? We'll roll with it. <laughs> okay. Well, catch us up to date. What uh, what have you been watching on Netflix recently, Chris? Uh, so I recently just finished uh, the newest season of BoJack Horseman. Yeah. Season four. So good. Yes. Uh, not as good as the past couple seasons. I, I disagree. You disagree. Sorry, go ahead. Personally, I didn't I didn't find it to be as great as the last season. Not to say it had gone down in quality at all, but I just wasn't as gripped by it this time around. Still brilliant, but like you know, they're a bit more on their stride. Yeah, there's a bit more of a quiet genius to this one, like yeah. in terms of the overall story arcs and such and stuff like that. So sure, I think some of it was more personal for me, having family that's like experienced dementia, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no idea what kind of research went into you know their depictions of dementia, but to see it played out in a narrative sort of way in a way that a cartoon frees you up to do that a live action series just doesn't right was uh it was really remarkable and horrifying well the one certain episode if if i'm trying to be vague here to avoid spoilers but there's a certain episode the second last one the second last yeah. one that was amazing like yeah. that all brought it together up until that point you know it was a good season that brought context to the whole series before it but uh yeah much like the fish out of water episode last season brilliant television mm-hmm. animated or not cool anything else uh I, i've actually been uh, watching that 70s show with my wife I've okay pretty much gone through the entire thing just uh like as comfort food or yeah just kind of mindless end of the day after a long day with a potentially sick toddler <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's man. nice nice to turn your brain off and and boy 
that show is a you can just check right out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I haven't checked in with it since seeing it on on reruns back when I was living at home with cable. Like, does it hold up or is it just? Like friends, you can go back, you can watch, and you're like, okay, I'll enjoy myself in waves and then be numb for the rest of it. Uh, earlier on, it's like that, yeah. Um, in the first couple of seasons, they were a little more on top of you know being true to the 70s source material, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, they got into issues a little deeper. Like in the one, there's one episode where a uh, politician comes to town and Red wants to ask him all these cutting questions and such, and he's, he's fed this generic question to, uh, to ask him. Um, so he's come to terms with that. Really got into like you know the historical context of it, and then later on it becomes a lot of really pervy jokes, right. almost becoming like kind of misogynistic. Like like almost every other single episode, Fez is peeping on people. Oh Fez! Like right. so that's getting a little grating. We're in the final season, and Topher Grace is not in anymore, and Ashton Kutcher left too. And like I'll be kind of glad when it's done. But <laughs> right. uh, for me. I gave a chance to the recent Netflix original movie, Little Evil. It's the one where it's like a, a comedy parody of The Omen. Oh, okay. Where uh, Adam Scott um, ends up marrying Evangeline Lilly, who already has a son who hmm. is the son of the devil, basically, and they play around with that. Very middle of the road. Now, this is not by any means a recommendation. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that whole horror parody genre kind of tapped at this point? I don't know if it, I mean, I don't think that a genre can necessarily become tapped out. I think mm. just if your movie has three or four good jokes in it and it's 90 minutes long, then you're going to struggle. And then I tried to watch, I had made a, a vow to Mike Grasso a few episodes back that I would give uh, the new Mystery Science Theater 3000 a try. Oh, okay. So I put that on, tried to watch the first episode, Reptilicus. And I don't know. I think it's maybe just because I already watch bad movies sometimes for fun. <laughs> I didn't really gain too much from having some silhouettes chirping it for me. It's it's not a genre that's catered to you at this point as the host of a. Well, I mean, I've never done podcast. like live tracks or anything. Like, I'm not that funny to be able to pull anything like that off. But I don't know. I found that I was either watching the movie and trying to judge it myself, but I couldn't get into that because there was somebody already doing that for me mm-hmm. but the jokes themselves weren't funny enough for me to be enjoying it for somebody else doing it may, and i don't know maybe the maybe the first one is just not the best one to go with but at you know two hours an episode i don't know if i want to put any more time into trying it yeah it's a pretty substantial investment well that's enough about that the movie that we're here to talk about this episode is from the year 2010 from director edgar wright we're going to be talking about Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Ooh. Let's take a look at how Netflix describes this movie. See if uh, this is something that you think you'd watch. All right, so first, when you hover over the title, it says, The only thing between him and the girl of his dreams is her old boyfriends. All seven of them. It's a dating smackdown. Yeah, right there, you don't have me. No, that's romantic comedy. That just sounds like a generic Gerard Butler, Catherine Heigl smash. A dating smackdown. That, like, I honestly feel like if I read that description, I would assume that it was a rom-com put out by WWE Studios. Yeah, no Trying to fit in that SmackDown there. It's, it's, it's the next WWE Flintstones crossover. Exactly. Yeesh. Now, the, the click description is a lot better, I think. It's a lot more true to the movie. 
It says, Dreamy Delivery Girl Ramona captures Scott Pilgrim's heart, but he must vanquish all seven of her evil exes in martial arts battles to win her love. Much better, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's what people like about the movie. The genres it belongs to, according to Netflix, are action and adventure, action comedies, comedies, and martial arts movies, and it's described as witty. I, I, I have to give props to whoever, whoever names these genres because they just pretty much do ad-libs, I think. <laughs> you know, this is a blank comedy. This is a action blank. All right, so pulling back the curtain a little bit, you came to me and said, Dylan, I saw that Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is on Netflix. It's time for me to do my first solo Netflix episode. <laughs> yeah, so it, it what, came what, back. What, what gave you that reaction, like just seeing that it was on there, you were just like, I need to talk to somebody about this. <laughs> so tell me about that. Why, why did you have that reaction to seeing it on there? Why did you want to bring bring this movie to the table okay i'll start with a little bit of context so the con or the movie is obviously based on a um, graphic novel by brian lee o'malley um, and when the film was close to coming out there's a bit of a natural phenomenon in london where anytime someone who has once lived here has some kind of success like the london free press and like the local media just jumps on it so you know, there was a whole big thing in the free press i remember seeing um oh like local author has movie coming out essentially um, so that got me interested in the source material and the movie itself. I saw it in theaters when it came out. I was one of the ten people who saw it in theaters. I think um, it was a very, it was probably the smallest um, audience in a in a movie theater I've ever been in, and uh, loved it at the time. Um, and thought I'd come back to see if it holds up after seven years. Yeah. So I didn't realize that. I mean, for anybody who doesn't realize this, this podcast here is recorded in London, Ontario. At the very nice recording studio at 121 Studios. This is a very plush studio, I must say. As a podcaster, I must endorse the studio. I love it in here. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't realize, is Brian Lee O'Malley lived in London at some point? Was he a Western student or did he I forget actually the, live here? I forget the details. It's kind of like, you know, how Ryan Gosling once lived in London. And he lived for, for a couple of years when he was a kid. Right. Um, and then moved to Toronto. <laughs> right. But, you know, London, here in London, we like to grab at any source of celebrity that comes in remotely close to us. So Anybody we can. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. He lived here very briefly and then moved to Toronto and wrote a comic book but that dibs. is <laughs> entirely set in Toronto in the most faithful way possible. Okay, so you wanted to come back, you wanted to revisit it seven years later. So I guess, actually, before we do that, in the first place, did you love the movie? Uh, first time through, liked it a lot. Even when it came out on video and I watched it again, I still liked it. Uh, and it wasn't until about that point that I actually got past the first volume of the comic and read you know the rest of the proper story and coming back to it now it doesn't hold up as much as i thought it would i was doing a little digging behind the scenes too and the film rights were sold after the first volume of the comic came out um and by the time the movie was coming out the final volume had just come out like a few weeks before so the screenplay only had notes on the conclusion of the story to go off of very game of thronesy yeah yeah (laughs) that's a very apt comparison actually so the ending that we get is, you know, entirely disjointed. Well, to be fair, not entirely disjointed, but very different from the printed, let's call it canon conclusion. Right. So have you read the books? I, I, I not recently, but after watching the movie, I went back and wa- and read the read the source material, which is, I'll just say, I'll just say right here, it is much better as the character in the movie states. The comic book is better than the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, the the hipster guy. Yeah, Como. Yeah. So do you think that you want to revisit the comics at some point or Yeah, actually there's a there's been a, a reprinting of it where he's Brian Lee O'Malley's gone back and done the whole thing in color again. It was originally uh 
all black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's made little tweaks here and there. It's almost like a director's cut. I definitely, after watching this movie for this podcast, I would definitely want to go back and re-read, re-read everything. But I thought it'd be kind of neat to look back. Are you back worried and, that it's not going to hold up as much as the film didn't hold up? Uh, not so much, because I enjoyed the comic a lot more off the hop. Um, so I, and, and the story it presents is, like, we'll get into the details, but the story it presents is much more comprehensive and mm-hmm. in-depth. What you get here is, not to sound like a traditional comic book nerd, but <laughs> the comic book is so much deeper and so much more fully realized than this movie mm-hmm. is, as I came to realize. Um, my first opinion watching this, and it would have been 2010, 2011, I bought the DVD, I just, by reputation... I had heard that I was going to love this thing. Mm-hmm. Like I knew that there was this director, Edgar Wright, that I was supposed to love. And I knew that this movie was something that was catered to me. And I was just blown away by it the first time I saw it. I just felt like this movie is made for me. And then I never watched it again, despite kind of considering it to be a favorite movie. Mm-hmm. I just never felt compelled to go back and watch it again. And man, does it not hold up <laughs> to... I don't know if the movie's changed so much as I've changed. And I think for the better, <laughs> but <laughs> but it made me kind of embarrassed for how much I love the movie. L- you know, watching it again, just being like, "Oh man!" <laughs> like the, <laughs> the things I don't like about Scott Pilgrim, the character specifically, are things that I've come to really not like about myself in the past. So yeah, this is this one was a lot rougher than I expected to be. Like when you first came to me with it, you're like, "Scott Pilgrim versus the World," and my thought was, "Yeah, this will be great. I get to revisit it. This is awesome." Yeah. And then um, I believe after that, Caroline, frequent co-host of the Netflix podcast, just watched it for the first time with their boyfriend, and they were just having such a hard time <laughs> with it. And I was like, oh, no, is this movie not as good as I remember? And then watching it, I was like, oh, no, this movie is not as good as I remember. <laughs> well, full disclosure, actually, part of the reason why I wanted to watch or do this movie in the show, I was hoping that Caroline would be able to be here, too, to take it to task with me but uh but they've gone off to france like a fucking fancy person oh, 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 yeah yeah part of what brought it back to my mind too beside the fact that it popped back up on netflix again it was off for a little while uh was the fact that they were buying the comics for somebody and uh trying to tell them you oh, know i really like i really like that movie the comics were so good and then they watched it and they were not happy with it and mm-hmm. yeah so i, I kind of figured it was time to to look back on it myself like you i mean i i look back on it and how much I identified with Scott at the time, movie Scott at the time. And now, having, ironically not enough, I watched this on my 30th birthday in preparation for this episode. Right. So that was a bit of a temporal mind screw there. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just I kind of hate that I see myself in him back then. Yeah. I mean, but, that, that's where I was coming from. And I do need to acknowledge that me hating 22-year-old asshole Scott now probably just means that I'm going to hate 30-year-old Dylan in five or seven years from now. Like, I'm just a different kind of asshole. I'm not necessarily <laughs> a better person. Better with age. Yeah. yeah, but, okay, so what do you, what what is it about the character that made you kind of, makes you kind of cringe now then that that wasn't there before? I think I'm realizing just how whiny he was. I mean, obviously he came, he comes, he comes across whiny, even if you are 22 years old in a similar situation to Scott. You have to kind of admit it's a Michael Sarah character. He's going to be a little bit whiny, but now I'm finding him so much more whiny and like just pathetic. Like, just shut up and get a hold of yourself, man. But right. again, I'm saying that as someone who wants to say that to his past self as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
Part of my issue too, and again, I'm trying not to sound like a typical comic book nerd here, but the movie version that we get is so much shallower. Um, everything in this movie is just so scaled back. Everything is a caricature of itself, essentially. Um, Ramona especially is just so dumbed down and watered down. And So can you give me an idea of what we're missing? I haven't read the books in, mm-hmm. in years either. So can you give me an idea of what's missing? Like what what missed the mark in the adaptation? Well, everything that wasn't directly related to the Seven X's plot is just cut right out. So there's all kinds of other subplots going on. Like uh, Stephen Stills, the lead singer of the band, turns or discovers he's gay or comes to terms with the fact that he's gay. Um, later on in the, in the series, there's more of an expanded role for a lot of the characters, including like Envy Adams, who after being, you know, like a shadow over the first half of the movie is just utterly forgotten after that point in the story. Ramona has so much more depth. She actually does things. In the movie, she's just there and we're told that Scott likes her and we're told that we should probably like her too. And that's it. Right, because Aubrey Plaza told us that she's the coolest girl at the party because she's from New York. Yeah, because as you know, all of all of us Canadians are just enamored with Americans just for the fact of where they're born. You know, we kind of are. We are. We yeah. I mean, we are. We are. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting here in London, and we're like, oh, Toronto. That's the <laughs> magical place where celebrities grow up and move off to. I've heard the Wizard lives there. What about Scott? Is Scott different? Like you've kind of slagged on movie Scott like mm-hmm. Michael Sarah. like how is he different from graphic novel Scott uh, my understanding is obviously it's been a while since I read this but like at one point Scott has a job whereas you know in, in reviews of this movie he'll say oh Scott's unemployed he's a total loser in a band like that's the only thing he has going for him is the fact that he's a bass player he makes more of an attempt to actually grow the hell up whereas in the movie he's like well I'm growing up now because the plot kind of demands I have to be right sure. like, there's, there's no real journey for him in the movie he just fights some guys and then gets the girl. Right. Yeah, Scott is... I guess I was trying to kind of delay this as much as possible, but Scott as a character in this movie is my biggest problem now. Mm-hmm. Partially because of, you know, my my own self-loathing. But he's just... He's such an unremarkable character for the hero of a movie. And I don't know if that being, quote, the point of it is a good enough reason to look past that. Mm-hmm. Like everything about this guy, and you've pointed this out, is designed to make him seem, I don't even want to say pathetic because pathetic suggests that we have pathos for him. <laughs> he's just, like I said, he's this totally unremarkable character. He's a guy who does not have a job. He's a guy who's been recently dumped. He's so messed up I guess from his last relationship that he is looking for comfort in the arms of a 17 year old girl Mm -hmm. and the movie asks us to I mean all of these characters are disgusted by it but we're also supposed to kind of be like oh it's okay man we get it it's just a tough time but like that's a pretty gross thing to do man it's a pretty Um, dark turn yeah yeah and I mean his Maybe I just don't have the right ear for that type of music, but like he does have this band that he's playing in that doesn't sound in any way remarkable to me. When he plays his own original song for Ramona, she <laughs> comments that it's unfinished. Like there's nothing to this guy at all. Right. The only thing that he's good at is fighting. Of all things. And the fighting isn't. I mean, it's real in the context of the movie, but just, like, 
it only seems to exist for the sake of letting this unremarkable guy play out a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what this movie is. It's a fantasy for unremarkable men to feel like they're remarkable. Right. Right? Like, I think Brian Lee O'Malley, or maybe Edgar Wright, I don't remember who it was, but they said that part of the inspiration for this whole project was how great would it be if all the time that we spent playing video games in our lives actually became a practical skill? Oh, God, if only. So that was the idea, is that, well, he spent his whole time growing up playing, like, Mortal Kombat and and Street Fighter. What if all of a sudden that became valuable in the real world? And he was faced with a situation where this thing that shows that I'm at best a slacker is suddenly valuable. But we also never see him play video games either. Right. <laughs> so it's not like it's in world. It's just kind of like for us as guys who probably played video games growing up, we're supposed to be like, oh my God, this is me. We're supposed to relate to it and we're supposed to celebrate that he's so great at fighting even though he's a schlub. Right. In every other facet of his life. And, and it worked, too, because as we both admitted off the top, this at one point to our younger selves screamed, hey, this is a guy you can relate to. Like, they hooked us with this. Yeah. We both fell for it. Exactly. And, and now we both kind of regret it from the sounds of it. Yeah. Fuck, man. <laughs> it's just it's such a great concept, and you could do so much with that. But this movie just goes, here's this loser, and oh, now he's fighting a guy, and he kicks ass. And now he's back to being a loser. And now he outwits this guy. That's a great concept, but it's not present. Like you know, like, like you said, you don't show him playing games. He mentions a game or two. Like, oh, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy II. That's great. But you know, like, young Neil spends time playing games on screen. Not that we need to see Michael Sarah camped in front of a PlayStation for, for 10 minutes of the film, but it's, just, it's not there. It's just thrown in, and we buy into it we suspend our disbelief so willingly because i think the movie is just so slow before it that we're like oh hell yeah this is an awesome fight scene well yeah well i think we buy into it because we're supposed to because it makes us feel good about ourselves Mm -hmm. like us meaning you and me guys who were 22 years old when this movie came out and another big part of this whole thing is his relationship with ramona because ramona is and i've I recently I was reading today that I guess the phrase "manic pixie dream girl" is one that the the guy who first wrote about it has kind of stepped back from because it's been overused. Yeah, and that some critics have said that it's now kind of become a sexist term that is just kind of like if you want to dismiss a female character who's kind of quirky, you just label her a manic pixie dream girl, and then you don't have to take her seriously anymore. Or Mary Sue, either one. Um, sure, but I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, a manic pixie dream girl is specifically a. A girl who seems to have no real characteristics for herself. She just exists to be quirky in a way that helps the guy discover something about himself. But also because she's so flighty, he doesn't have to grow up too far because he still needs to, like, line up with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, by and large, <laughs> Ramona. I mean, she's got a bit of her own thing going on, and we can come back to that, but... I mean, she is treated in the movie as the prize that he wins for beating this video game. Right. There's no question of that. And structurally, we're told that Ramona is awesome because Mm -hmm. she's the coolest girl at the party. She seems interesting. She's got different colored hair. So at the very least, there are these like signifiers that we're supposed to think she's interesting, even though she doesn't really do anything all that interesting. So if we believe that, then 
which is a stretch, I think, in and of itself. But if we if we buy into that whole idea that she is really cool and awesome, then there's no reason for her to be interested in Scott. Because Scott is this weird guy who, I mean, they make a joke in the captions of the movie or in the narration of the movie that Scott stalks her. Right. You know, th- yeah. That this weird guy from Toronto just like stalks her and she seems somehow flattered by that. Um, I, I mean, we do get towards the end where Ramona kind of admits that she was into it because Scott was simple. Right. Exactly. In the way that Knives was simple for Scott. Exactly. Yeah. So I appreciated that they went that far and that they explained that she was like, I just wanted like the most basic, like juvenile relationship I could find. And that was Scott. <laughs> but then they fucking end up together and it's supposed to be this big rah-rah moment where he wins the day and everything's turned out great for him. And like, that's such bullshit. It's so... Let me throw something at you though. Now that you mentioned the ending. So the original ending, it's it's on the DVD. Yeah. Uh, in the original ending that they filmed, Scott ends up with knives after all that. After yeah. every, after everything, he kind of wraps things up with Ramona. They go their separate ways, and he ends up with knives in the end. But they played it for test audiences, and people didn't like it. Um, the scores were very divisive. So they went back, reshot it to what we get now in the film. Well, yeah, they reshot it after he finished the book. So that it would match the book. Yeah, now it's more in line with that too. But it was also because of the test scores, I heard. Right. So if he had ended up with Knives, do you think that's a more redeeming arc for Scott? No, I don't think that Scott is a character who... I mean, if, not that we should be treating relationships as prizes for being a good person. Yeah, first but of like, all, you yeah. Know, like, women are not prizes. But Scott goes from a very baseline... Like, he's just... He's a, he's a pretty shitty person yeah. most of the way through the movie. He's self-pitying he's mopey he mistreats this underaged girl who he's in a relationship with where he strings her along he completely forgets that she exists and invites this hot new girl from new york to the same concert then he cheats on her and then we and then when he finally breaks up with her he gets like all these brownie points for doing the right thing right like yeah his and I mean, his big triumphant thing at the very end of the movie, which I guess we're spoiling at this point, his big triumphant thing is that he dies, like Gideon kills him. Yeah. And then he comes back to life after having this epiphany about being a piece of shit. Right. And his big redeeming moment is that he apologizes to Knives for being a piece of shit. Right? Yeah. What he does is not becoming a heroic figure what he does is lowering himself from a very very like he <laughs> he starts to approach the baseline for decent humanity is what he does that's not deserving <laughs> of a prize right and i mean like this this still speaks to me as i try to like be a more decent person and be more conscientious of like the goals of feminism and everything so i mean like the whole idea that guys who try to be allies are often setting the bar so low that when they so that when people act like decent human beings, instead of just setting that as like, okay, this is the standard of decency, they're just like standing there with their arms out being like, give me a cookie, give me a cookie because I did the right thing. You know, just like, it's not a thing worth celebrating. It's, give me all the cookies, really. It's... Yeah, it's it's a sh- it's disappointing that this is treated as heroic when really he's just treating another human being who he mistreated, he's treating them decently, and he gets rewarded with the dream girl. Yeah, like he's he's the epitome of the guy who throws around the friend zone, like oh yeah, like I was nice to you. Don't I deserve like everything you have now? I, d- I don't know if he necessarily goes that far, well, not but directly, I mean, like yeah. the, it's more the concept of the nice guy. 
Exactly. Yeah. Right. The like nice the, guy. the nice guy who's a victim. That like, oh, I was nice to you. I don't understand why you won't be with a nice guy. Like Ramona calls him twice in the movie, the nicest guy that I've been with. And he even makes a comment about how or I can't remember if it's in the uh, if it's in the actual ending or the alternate ending, which I I did watch today. Right. Where he's like, oh, well, like that's not very good for you if I'm the nicest guy you've you've been with and she's kind of like yeah I know and like those little moments are the best moments in the movie where they acknowledge that this is all bullshit (laughs) and that this this stupid male fantasy shouldn't exist that's what I have a problem with in this movie yeah no and it's totally legit but then the fact but just to picture him ending up with knives in the end anyways I think that's just as much of a slight to knives as it is if he ends up with Ramona. Well, and I liked that, I mean, even though it felt tacked on, I liked that in the ending where he ends up with Ramona, that Knives gets a bit more actualized as well, although it doesn't make any sort of sense either. Like, there's no there's no reason that she would change her mind about the relationship. Like, she shows up to kill Ramona with Knives swinging and, like, ready to, ready to kill somebody yeah. for hurting the guy who hurt me or whatever, whatever her, like, rationalization is, to then outside 20 minutes later being like oh no that's fine you go home with that girl because you don't deserve me big flashy smile she just like becomes a different person for no reason yeah yeah you're right I mean I I kind of see it as her realizing that these two people deserve to be like shitty together and I'm kind of above that like she has this epiphany that we off screen but I I didn't believe that she actually thought that she was better than them I felt like that was just kind of her protecting herself I just appreciated that she at least got to kind of put herself on a little bit of a higher but like as Wallace says like you're you're too good for him like run like like, so she shows up with this code of honor that she's trying to settle um, by fighting Ramona and getting revenge for the person who hurt her but now once that's out of the way she's free to do whatever the hell she actually wants it's like she's operating on some Bushido code that she never mentions and she's got these secret motives am I making any sense well I think that you're making sense in that her actions don't really make sense I mean like we're supposed to see her as this girl who's never been in a real relationship before she got dragged along by this guy who shouldn't have been dating her in the first place who despite being I mean, like, his whole reason for wanting to date a 17-year-old is because in terms of, like, emotional preparedness for a relationship, that's where he is at. Exactly, yeah, but she's that on does, his level. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have those extra five years' worth of experience and also legal adulthood. Exactly. Which, I mean, they try to skirt around by being like, well, we've just held hands. And, like, no, like, there's – it's still weird and wildly inappropriate. Everybody's mad for a good reason that you're doing it. Yeah, or rather, but, all, or rather Kim is mad and everyone else is like, oh, cool. Well, well sorry, yeah, rather, all all the female characters are grossed out by it, and yeah. all, the, all the guys are acting all skeevy, like, oh, that's neat. Yeah, because the girls know who Scott is, and the guys are all just as dumb as Scott. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, Knives doesn't have, yeah, she, I mean, when she shows up, she's angry, because she's angry, because this is the most adult relationship she's ever been in, and as far as she knows, she's in love with this guy, and she's willing to go to drastic measures to try to be with him. For, so she's again, upset. No reason. And she's what's that? Like for no real reason too. Like she You mean like she shouldn't be into Scott? She shouldn't be into him cuz like, No, yeah, she's into him sh- because he's 22 and she thinks that he's interesting. Yeah. That's why she's into him because he's an adult who's preying on her. Like he's using he's And this is me being way more personal than I should be, but like 
when I was in, I think it was grade 11, I kind of went through like a similar phase where, you know, there was these girls who were in grade nine who seemed to think that I was really interesting. And I was like, oh, it feels really good to be interesting. So I'm going to hang out with this group of people now, never realizing on a conscious level what it was that I was doing and why I was doing it. But I was like, it's gross. It yeah. is gross. And yeah. it is not something that I should have been doing. And I mean, a two-year age, whatever. I'm not going to try to justify myself because it was gross. And there was like kind of a predatory sort of thing to it. And that's what Scott is doing on a grander scale. And Knives is just, I mean, she's a kid who is having these emotional reactions. And so by the end of the movie, she doesn't die and come back to life like Scott does. She doesn't have an epiphany. She just, because the movie requires it, she's okay with Ramona and Scott getting together. Yeah, That's the only reason for it. And at the very least, I guess when Scott and Knives end up together, it kind of makes a certain amount of sense. But it's still weird and gross, and those two shouldn't be together either. I was going to say, neither outcome is, is good. It's not um, even that Scott like doesn't deserve Knives. It's that that relationship shouldn't be in place in the first place. It was The whole beginning of the movie is this is a skeevy thing, and at the end, if that had been the ending, it would have been, okay, well, we're back to being skeevy and it's okay now because he has self-worth now. Well, yeah, except now she's learned that it's normal in a relationship for a guy to just kind of like explore other things and then come back and that you get rewarded for waiting around for shitty behavior. Yeah, yeah. Right? She, she fought for him, so it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's... Like nothing in this movie <laughs> sends a good message to anybody, right? Yeah. Like there's... So if you strip all of that away, then what you're left with is this movie that you watch because it looks enjoyable and it makes you feel nostalgic because it plays the Zelda song every so often (laughs) and then makes video game sound effects. That's all you're left with. Pretty much, yeah. And a really bad romantic comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) I've got problems with Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. One thing that stood out to me rewatching it was that one, uh, after the first fight, um, I think I think Edgar Wright felt he had to kind of bring the common audience back in after all, you know, the, the random Bollywood musical number weirdness. Um, so they, they use Seinfeld sound effects and like a laugh track. And I found that to be really jarring this time around. It's just it's, it's, it, it's out of place in a movie that's packed with like geeky references. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just that's a very commonplace social reference to make. But I was thinking about it because to me, Seinfeld is. You know, like by like by the finale, they make it clear that it's a show about people people's dark sides. It's a people about it's a show about how people can be total jerks in their in their day to day lives, and that's kind of what this movie is too. Because every almost every character in it is a bad person too. Like it's not just Scott and Ramona. Like it, everybody else is kind of a dick. Um, some of them are a little less obvious about it. Like Kim is just nasty all the time. She's just mean to everybody. Um, Aubrey Plaza's character is you know, a gossipy barista who just talks smack about people and has the magical ability to censor herself. So much the same way to me that Seinfeld was about, you know, how people really are. This is kind of like the movie equivalent for millennials, I guess. I don't know if it's that or if it's just that the people who made the movie are snarky. Mm -hmm. And so like, isn't it fun to be snarky and to be negative all the time? Like Kim is a fun character. Like well, she's, because she's fun because she's hitting on Scott and subconsciously we all realize that she is entirely right about him. Hitting on Scott. No, I'm uh, sorry. 
Oh, hating on Scott. Hating on Scott. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, no, that's that's over. Um, yeah, but I, don't, I feel like that's giving it more credit than it deserves to kind of talk about how it's exposing people's inclination towards being negative. Like, it's it's not... I don't think it is that. Hmm. I think that it's supposed to be a fantasy. Well, there's no doubt about it. It's a fantasy, but it doesn't mean that it can't also kind of say, like, hey, here's the reality of how people are, too. I don't have an intelligent rebuttal for that, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll let it stand. <laughs> I didn't find the, the sitcom thing to be particularly jarring in that, like, gaming in general is not... It's something that I grew up doing, but it's yeah. not, like, in my blood. Yeah. In the same way that it is for a lot of people. I mean, like, you're part of a like a, a Final Fantasy union. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the, like, what's the... They're their YouTube channel, well, website. Right. So you're part of, like, a a pretty big Final Fantasy community, mm-hmm. right? Like, you you have that in you that you're like, this is part of who I am, is this, this love of this particular game and this particular franchise. I think, for me, it was more like, okay, this is a guy who just has grown up in very flashy pop culture, and the, so that's the way that he's seeing the world, mm-hmm. and that's the way that the filmmakers are kind of, like the filter that they're putting through the world that you know when you're having a dream sequence you can have legend of zelda music because well it's wired in your subconscious exactly yeah. it's it's part of you it's in you to to think that way and to feel that way i mean like, there's a lot of characters in the movie that like i i can kind of relate to people that i've known in my life too like you know like i've met like a kind of weird artistic guy like so like x character can be or i've like that um Komio, I'm probably butchering his name, but the the hipster guy at the party that oh, knows Como. everybody, yeah, yeah Como, um, yeah, like we've all known a hipster like that. We've all known, is it Lisa or Abby Plaza's character? We've all known the gossip like that. It's it, it's it's like a checklist of millennial stereotypes. So maybe maybe that's my own cynicism for people that I used to know or something like that coming through, and that I think this movie is partly, or one of its agendas is to kind of critique that nasty side of our own society. Yeah, and I think, I mean, people do represent types in this movie for sure, particularly um, when it comes to the the exes. Yes. I mean, I'm not really sure what to do with the Bollywood thing, but, like, Chris Evans' character, what's his name, Lucas Lee? Lucas Lee. Lucas Lee. Like, he's, if Scott Pilgrim is a quote-unquote nice guy, then Lucas Lee is a total Chad, right? Yeah. Like he's this this beefy bro who skateboards and who has an entourage of guys that he hangs out with and they all <laughs> look the same. And the the movie's critical of that type, right? That yeah. type of person. And that's a type of person that Scott has to overcome. It's actually his way of dealing with his own issues of his appearance, or- right? Because that's when he's doing his whole haircut thing, right? Like he's all messed up about his hair being properly styled because because of the breakup yeah yeah what's what's natalie's stage name uh envy adams envy adams because uh he has this like acute memory of exactly how long it's uh, about the fact that the last time he got a professional haircut that was when envy broke up with him so he's got this this trauma associated with having his haircut and so he's all self-conscious about his hair because now ramon is paying attention to his hair he's like oh my god what am i gonna do yeah but then he uses lucas lee's own vanity to destroy him so that's scott kind of it's supposed to be that he's growing as a person but he's not really it's about him like not wearing a hat on top of his hair he's not (laughs) he's not like looking at himself critically he's not realizing like i'm kind of a weird looking dude but that's okay 
he's just getting over a haircut. Yeah, like listening to you there, like it, it, it's almost as if there's some deeper symbolism in the film for each conflict, and you can kind of do that with Lucas Lee. You might be able to do it with Matthew Patel and that Matthew Patel was like a weird outsider when Ramona was dating him. Well, yeah, he was like an artsy hipster sort of guy. Yeah. I mean, so in, like, the, in the way that he's dressed and he's very conscious of what's fashionable. Like he's the he's the metro guy that Scott then overcomes. And then with the, the vegan guy. The Todd, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Todd, that's a perfect name for him. I know that is his, <laughs> is his name, but like Such Todd a is Todd. a perfect character name. I mean, like Todd is this vegan douche that nobody likes and he's super obnoxious and oddly enough Scott defeats this smug bastard with the power of being smug like Scott is so insufferable when he's finally getting one over on the vegan guy like like the way that he plays the character where he's just kind of like the half and half yeah blowing on his knuckles and like so proudly being like oh well I actually thought really hard about filling this cup with half and half and this is the soy <laughs> one and then he sips like such a dick but it's like he's not even he's not growing as a person. He's actually like adopting the mannerisms of the assholes exactly in order yeah. to defeat them. Like he's becoming a worse person as the movie <laughs> goes on. It's like he's he's confronting the part of himself that you know Todd is, despite not being likable, he is or supposed to be a morally upstanding person. Like he's got this moral code of being a vegan, and he's a really talented musician. So Scott sees this guy with with morals and skills. And he has to confront that, but then he does it, yeah, by by just absorbing like the worst part of him. It, it, it's like if Mega Man absorbed the douchiness of all his op- opponents, yeah, instead of the best part of them. Yeah, I mean, it's not about Scott growing as a person. It's about dismantling the fact that man isn't annoying. Like, aren't vegans annoying and self righteous? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I don't really have anything to say about the, the twins because they might as well not have been in the movie. Yeah, that was just really more of a special effects thing. I don't think that Scott really learns anything except for to stand up and fight for what you believe in, I guess. To be really angry, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, how did you feel about the fight with, uh, what's her name, Mae Whitman, Egg from Arrested Development? Her? Her? <laughs> <laughs> Roxy. Roxy, yeah. Uh, a lot of style. Um, that's that's one thing you can say for this movie in spades is that it's, it's style over substance. I like that that Ramona actually got to do something to stand up for herself yeah. at one point in the movie. Uh, the conclusion is a little, <laughs> a little out there, but uh, I, I can't say that that's something they made up for the movie. That, that oh yeah, I forgot was... about the ending of that. Yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah, yeah, and she comes to death. <laughs> weird. I'll have what she's having. Uh, yeah. Wait, just... hold on. Okay, fuck. Okay, okay, because I've got some problems now. Well, I, I was gonna say because it, uh, it's style, but it also deepens the whole sexist overtones of the entire thing of you know oh I, she, she she tells she says she has a phase where she experimented and all he has to say is oh you had a sexy phase like it's he just reverts to that deepest misogynistic message in our in our culture the idea of like lesbians only existing for male pleasure yeah exactly idea. yeah yeah that was pretty gross um and i mean i get that you know sometimes women will experiment and you know whatever um but, yeah. I mean, it was just kind of like, of course Ramona would have had a a lesbian face. Because she's so perfect, yeah. Right, because she's so edgy and hip. Like, it's not, it's just, like, at every turn, it was like, okay, here's the bare minimum to set off a signifier of, like, to make you think this way without doing anything to really back it up. And then, it, to, I mean, if you want to go really far with it, which is probably me taking it too far, but, I mean, when we're meant to understand that 
Ramona and Roxy were together long enough for Ramona to figure out a very effective way to give Roxy sexual pleasure. But then when a man gives Roxy sexual pleasure, she explodes. Yeah. Literally. Maybe that's just me wondering too much about the mythology of the movie that like, why do these people explode into coins? And like, why is it that she's able to come so hard that she dies? Like that whole thing. Like, it's just, it's all very strange. And they really didn't want to have Scott fight Roxy. They really didn't want to have so hard. Yeah. They really didn't. They, they were clearly looking for a way to have Scott not hit a woman to have him not like physically bring harm to a female character. Well, at that being said, after they've just had a scene where uh, an older man strikes a 17-year-old girl, too. Yeah. Okay, that pisses me off about <laughs> fucking Scott as well. And maybe, fine, maybe this is when we're still supposed to think that Scott's a piece of shit. But Todd, the vegan douche, punches knives for being annoying, right? Mm-hmm. She's just, like, trying to tell Envy Adams that she's super enthusiastic about her blog. And, I mean, for me, I love when people read my blog, but... <laughs> But, okay, so Todd punches Knives in the face, yeah. knocks her clear to the ground. Knocks the highlights out of her hair. Knocks yeah. the highlights out of her hair. Uh, young Neil goes to her help. Scott does fucking nothing. No one does anything. <laughs> and then Todd insults Toronto, and then Scott gets mad. You're allowed to punch my ex-girlfriend, the girl who's only here because I've been mistreating her this whole time, yeah. but don't you dare say anything about Toronto. Like, that's so fucked up, Scott. Well, and in that context, I'm definitely glad they didn't go with the knives ending. But then, yeah, to go from that and then to go, well, Todd can't fight the ninja, the trained, like, the trained assassin lady. Let's throw Ramona in there for the one fight scene she really gets. There's some weird standards and practices stuff going on behind the scenes here. Like, they can't they can't drop the F-bomb once and they only have, like, one chance to show that kind of physical violence so then they had to resort to these means. Yeah, looking at, looking at the Roxy fight through the like the context of the fight directly before it, that definitely kind of sours the whole thing for me. I do not have a set opinion on whether or not you should have men fighting women. Like I see this debate happening all the time in uh, like in debates in like the wrestling community, like the pro wrestling community, right. like whether or not it's ethical to have mixed gender matches where women are fighting men and so on and so forth. Um, like whether it sets a precedent and like you know encourages violence against women or whether it's better to have representation of strong female characters which i know is not a phrase that i should be using but anyway like these these literally strong female characters yeah. holding their own and you know it's it's complicated i get that but it's just i to have to have the roxy thing happen right after the other thing where is just yeah i don't well in the whole context of here is a man fighting a trained female combatant Versus the context of a man abusing a random, younger, more vulnerable woman. Yeah, and I mean, you're supposed like, to see the Todd thing as horrible. Like, yeah. There's no question of that. <laughs> it's just that Todd doesn't, or it's just that Scott doesn't do anything about it. Yeah. It's, it's the Toronto thing. That's what's so upset. Like, he has the ability to stand up and do what's right, but not in defense of a human being who he's been mistreating the whole movie. Only in defense of this like ethereal city that he loves so much. It's like I, I will sit by idly as a seventeen year old girl is struck, but I will not fight to defend myself. Like there's just weird. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a. He won't hit a girl, but he also won't protect a girl who's being hit. <laughs> yeah, like, 
And, and again, this but he is, gets the points for not hitting a girl. We're supposed to be like, oh, Scott, you're so, I, it's great that you're so chivalrous that you don't want to hit a woman. Well, what's stranger too is that these are things where they deviated from the comics as well. Like in the comics, it's their female drummer who slaps uh, knives. It's not Todd. Um, and Scott directly fights Roxy on his own in the comic. These are things that they've gone out of their way to twist and change for the movie. And it's like, what was the decision behind changing it so that Todd strikes knives? Like, I don't get the rationale. Like, oh, we can't give. Well, because there's no, because there is no drummer character. Well, she's like, there. She's, 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 she's there, physically but she's in the not, scene. She's not, in, she's not important to the story. Yeah. And but, because you get points for Scott not hitting a girl. But at the same time, to have the. I, th- the, I think yeah. that for audiences, they would have a harder time with that scene if he was fighting her, or at least there would be the concern that, like, they were. It seemed like they were just trying to avoid talking about it mm-hmm. by not doing it and by having Ramona puppeteer him. But then they do the weird orgasm ending, and it's just uncomfortable. Yeah, he wins via literal sexual conquest. Yeah. Yeah. He fucks her to death. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> He's so masterful at giving her pleasure that she cannot withstand it. Yeah. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> it's kind of a strange message that it sends about relationships too that you know they're, Scott and Ramona don't really end up together together until the very end like you can say that their relationship hasn't really started until they've come until, until they've gone through all this crap because the movie takes place in a week like they're not like they're kind of in like the will they won't they stage of dating and it's not until they go through the, her, the hoops of the seven X's that they end up together so it's kind of a weird message to me, looking back on it now, that he he has to confront her baggage. Like, it's one thing to, like, he has to physically exercise her demons for her, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, these are nagging problems from her past that she either cannot or will not deal with. And it's up to him, a man, to come in and kind of settle these things for her. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, okay, so I didn't finish because we talked oh, about yeah. the twins. And then we didn't talk about Gideon. Because mm. Gideon is like the biggest chat of all in that I mean Ramona goes through stereotypical lines that men's rights kinds of guys talk about that uh, you know she talks about like oh you know he's just got this power over me and you know I just can't help myself when I'm around him like he's this he symbolizes this total male fear that like because I'm inferior she's gonna end up with this bad guy this this Chad this mean guy because she's just so like she can't help herself because she's so like attracted to him and I'm over here you know being decent and holding doors and all this bullshit but she's always gonna end up choosing him like there are communities dedicated to this kind of thinking yeah looking at you reddit and then I mean the movie does offer an out I guess sort of in that like he literally like she says no I literally can't get him out of my head Mm-hmm. because she's got this chip on her head and like she is totally at the mercy of this guy and maybe it's not because you know she's this weak person who's just at the mercy of douche bros but like that's it seems like a cheap out because it's still sending us that message right like yeah. that's 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 what it's feeding us before we get that convenient out like it makes her i guess she doesn't even like when she loses that she doesn't fill that in with any kind of character like when she doesn't have that bond yeah, it's just like, oh, I, I, I guess now that I'm free, I'll just stick with the symbol guy. Yeah, yeah. Now, now that I have all the liberty in the world, let's just continue to settle. Yeah, it's yeah. a weird message. And again, I mean, just it like lazy that's... adaptation, and they didn't have the source material. The source material goes into it, and but makes I, the I whole don't think it's, I then... don't think it's just laziness, though. I think that it is like it's it's that fantasy, it's that attitude towards masculinity. Mm-hmm. 
put to film and celebrated. And I think that's bad. I think that's a harmful message. I think that we need to move past that whole concept of masculinity. Like, I think it was great for a while to feel empowered by like, rah, rah, nerds are the best. But like, you have to fucking do something to be remarkable. You can't just get by being Scott Pilgrim in your whole life and get everything handed to you. Yeah. Like, that can't be what we expect. We <laughs> have to do better than that. We have to do better than this movie. It has to be the gangly white knight. Yeah. Yeah. Again, coming back to this, like, I kind of feel bad as a person that I used to identify with this movie. Like, for all these reasons that we've gone through now, like, back then it was like, oh, this is, like, the ultimate, like, cool guy fantasy for like, guys like me. And I was like, this is what I've been told to think life is like. Now looking back on it as, you know, thirty year old with a with a daughter of my own, like I would beat the shit out of any kid who ta- who treats my daughter like this, like tries to gaslight them like this. I think it's I think it's getting ahead of myself to feel like oh I'm you know I'm I'm an evolved person now. Like I'm probably still a piece of shit in a lot of ways that I don't realize yet. But unlike Scott Pilgrim, you acknowledge that you're still growing with it too. Like you know you acknowledge that you're a work in progress. Yeah, well I, I don't know. I'm not like I don't I don't want the purpose of this podcast to be me <laughs> sitting here asking for cookies like mm-hmm. that's not that's not what i want i'm trying to help set a new baseline that is closer to the baseline that we should have yeah so what you're saying is this movie is actually a learning experience i'm saying it's something that we should that people who have experienced it and celebrated should look at it again look at it critically and move past and then we should leave it in the past is what i'm saying mm-hmm. yeah though they did have that cool moment of consent that whole little thing where right, yeah. Ramona and Scott were like getting ready to have sex. And then she was like, Oh, I changed my mind. And he's just like, okay, like that. I think that 15 seconds, I think is important to see that represented where in that moment, he's not a victim. He's not pouting. He's just kind of like, okay, well I'm going to be, okay. I'm, I'm okay with what this is. Yeah. And I'm going to enjoy the, the closeness that we are going to share. And I'm not going to be mad about it. And I'm not going to be shitty about it. Yeah, like it's probably you could probably say it's one of the best things he does in the movie as a, as a person. Right, but again, that should be the baseline and, of decency, <laughs> and that, that is should actually, not be. It's actually really pathetic that that's the best thing he does is that he acts like a decent person for once. That and that he's accepting of Wallace too, like he's willing to not only accept him for who he is and not be a douche about it, but he literally sleeps in the bed with him and his conquests. Like that's that's really forward thinking for a good douchebag like Scott. And and again, part of it is motivated by the fact that he is a jobless loser in this movie. Yeah, he totally depends on this guy. And he's he gonna... has no right to object if that is this, if that is the living situation. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah, for a guy who's a pretty big piece of shit. Um, before I completely and absolutely like rail against this movie. I did laugh a few times. Like I did enjoy myself sometimes. Yeah, it's not like a mirthless movie. I just think it's like overall messages past its prime, but like there there were some good jokes. Like when when Scott holds up the like the weird drawing and he's like, "Oh, she's got hair like this." Yeah, and everybody knows exactly who. She, oh, that's Ramona Flowers. Like that that sort of joke. And like when he's giddy that you know he kicked this guy's head off and oh coins. Yeah, <laughs> like there, there are little like flashes of moments where I really enjoyed it. Or I think the funniest one is when Scott dives out the window. When right. Kieran Culkin's like, "Oh, he just left." <laughs> and you see the like subtle, this... the, the yeah, the door closes yep. just a bit, and then you and then you see him fly out. Yeah, yeah. There's some great visual gags. There's some great delivery. I have to say that everybody except for Scott and Ramona has been casted brilliantly in this movie, and the performances are really solid outside of those two. 
like Lucas Lee and Todd, like you know, they're horrible characters, but like <laughs> that's some of Chris Evans' greatest work here. Like he so embodies that role of the shitty action hero mm-hmm. um, actor, like the, like the scene in, in, in the movie that they show on the television where he he limp walks into the phone booth and gives the yeah. corny dialogue. <laughs> like he is hitting it out of the ballpark here, while Michael Sarah is kind of just doing his usual Michael Sarah thing. Yeah. But, I mean, they went after him. Like, they they went after Michael Sarah. Edgar Wright saw Michael Sarah on Arrested Development and said, okay, this could be my Scott. Yeah, and because who else do you get to play the nerdy, shitty, hipster doofus at, in, in 2010 besides Michael yeah. Sarah? That being said, like, when I heard he was going to be doing, like, a like an arcade action movie, I thought, really? Like, you know, this whiny guy from Arrested Development? But he did better with the fight scenes than I expected. I'll give him some credit after shitting on him all podcast. Um, I, I I didn't think he'd be able to pull it off, but he did it believably. Mm-hmm. Trying to find some silver lining for him here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we'll wrap this up the same way that we always do, which is I'll invite you to tell me your rating for this movie. So on your own Netflix profile, uh, does it get a thumbs up or a thumbs down? And then, uh, yeah, your MVP. Who's your, your MVP either in front of, behind the camera, what have you? Um, so based on the current system, I give it a thumbs up because I still do like the overall popcorn movie, turn my brain off effect with the movie. Yep. Like I, I can still sit back and watch it and enjoy the action scenes and the comedy, like we said. It's only when you start to think about it too much that you start, well, it's only when you start to think about it at all um, <laughs> that, it's, that you see the, the holes coming through. Um more more accurately, I would I would I would have given it four stars on the old system because you can't give half marks. Uh, yeah, it's more of a three point five really. Uh, my MVP uh, aside from the casting director, I'm gonna go with Alan Wong as Knives Chow because, like I said, I think she's the only decent person um, in the movie who actually shows a little bit of growth, even if it is a little artificial. So many great performances again outside of Michael Sarah and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Not not that it's her fault that her character was written poorly, but um, everybody really commits to the bit. Yep. Um, but I think Ellen Wong wins overall. Yeah. No, I thought I thought that she was great. Um, I felt like she, I mean, despite, I believe she's actually older than Michael Sarah, but like you really believe that she was young and impulsive and in a really like genuine, enthusiastic way. Um, for my MVPs though, I'm or sorry, for my rating and MVP, I'm saying thumbs down. I was, I mean, I admit to waffling a bit about it because the aesthetic enjoyment that I got from watching the movie was still there. Now, not as much because I wasn't right. seeing it for the first time. Being like, "What? You can make a movie like this? That's amazing!" <laughs> um, what the hell was that voice? You're a Muppet now. But just, yeah, I think that watching this movie and enjoying it and just kind of accepting it as is has the potential to be harmful. In mm-hmm. terms of, you know, just maintaining this narrative of mediocrity being deserving of, and fine, like I, I also acknowledge that like people need fairy tales and they need to feel like, you know, maybe there is something special in me, and I'm not trying to take away people's self esteem. Yeah. I'm just saying like, being shitty is not mythical. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a power fantasy for the group of for the group of people who needs it the least. Nerdy white guys have enough outlets for power fantasies. Yeah, now, now I think that now I think that they do. I mean, I don't know if that was that was always the case. Maybe that was why in 2010 it felt. And I mean, not that cultures really changed that much in the last seven years. Yeah, I don't know. But where I'm sitting right now is that no, just no, we don't need to be doing this. 
Um, as for MVPs, I am picking, uh, for the bit part, I, I do agree that uh, Chris Evans was just, like, from when he shows up on screen to when he finishes being on screen, like, that's the most solid, enjoyable chunk of the movie. Um, Kieran Culkin, I think, was also great yeah. in, in the movie. I don't feel 100% comfortable with how many gay stereotypes he represented, but I also am not in a place to speak on that, aside from just kind of floating the idea. Like, yeah. I don't I don't want to come down too hard on that because I don't think I have the authority to do so. But, yeah, I think he played his part enjoyably. He was great when he was, like, calling people out. He was just, yeah, he was, he was a lot of fun in a way that was nowhere near as problematic as the rest of the movie. He He's the snarky voice of reason, really. He's the only one who really, or he's the best at calling Scott out. And he's not because Kim is because Kim sees him for who he is. Mm-hmm. Kim has been slighted by him. Kim is apparently just like one of many women who have been mistreated by Scott and sees him playing the victim in his own life, True. despite being a victim of his bullshit. <laughs> True, and but... she calls him out on it and like glares at him and doesn't let him doesn't let him off the hook ever. So they're kind of the voices on his shoulder, whereas she's just kind of telling him he's a piece of shit, the things he needs to hear and realize about himself. Wallace is also kind of coaching him, like here has here's how you get better than this. He's a shitty human being, but that is not to say that he couldn't be redeemed, like he couldn't change. We're not with him for long enough, and this movie doesn't have the kind of narrative depth or the time frame to do so to change him. But it's not, it's not to say that he couldn't be a better person. And Wallace is trying to steer him on that path by literally kicking him out the door and trying to spur him on. Yeah. yeah. And giving him the ultimatum that he has to break up with knives. And, yeah, just dragging him along. Yeah. I was going to say something, too, about how this movie is so, at moments, so faithful to, to the source in that it, like, copies moments. Like, it, it, it translates scenes from the comic onto, like, onto film. Like, some of the shots are verbatim from the comic. There's such attention to detail in so many aspects of it, like in, in, in all the fine details, but in the broad strokes, it just reduces it to this problematic story about a doofus. All right, man. Well, right. Uh, that's that's wrapping that up. So can you, yeah, what do you have going on? What do you want to tell people about? What do you want to plug? Uh, I've got my Star Wars podcast, the Quarter Portion podcast. Uh, we have had a bit of a hiatus for some personal and medical reasons, but uh, we're going to be hitting the ground running in the lead up to episode eight coming up this December. Um, for more on that, you can check us out on Twitter at Kyber Club. That's uh, at K-Y-B-E-R Club. I'm also doing a charity fundraiser for Extra Life, which raises money for children's hospitals um, here in London and in Toronto. Um, that's on November 4th, starting at noon. Uh, my group is uh, doing a 25-hour marathon because of the time change, um, raising money for local hospitals. So you can check us out on uh, on Twitter at Guild2Taps, all one word. Two, like the number? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, myself, am on Twitter at Hookathy, H-O-O-G-A-T-H-Y. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for suggesting this and for for coming on and and bringing this movie to my attention again. I hope I wasn't, I hope I didn't take the shine off of it too much for you. Actually, I kind of, I hope that I did. Well, yeah, I was going to say it, it, it deserves to be de-shined a little bit. I feel like it was, like you said, those the people who liked it, liked it and forgot about it. And now they think of it fondly, but times have changed around it. So yeah, it's good to revisit. All right, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.
That's going to be about everything for this episode of the Netflix podcast. I did mention at the beginning that there was something else that I wanted to get off my chest that I remembered while I was polishing this episode and editing it together. And that's the fact that Scott Pilgrim is really obsessed with Ramona's dating history. I mean, it's understandable that he's going to have some questions considering the whole evil exes forming a super group of douchiness to come and fight him. I get that part, but he also follows up every encounter with, really, you dated that guy? While also himself being completely unwilling to confront his own past and even acknowledge the people who he dated before. He always wants to brush everything under the rug. So yeah, that was just something else that bugged me, and so I wanted to get that off my chest. With that being said, if you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. To give you an example of the kinds of show notes that you can find on the blog, uh, for this episode, we've got further reading to the tune of a link off to our review of WWE Stone Age Smackdown, which is a movie that for some reason we briefly mentioned, as well I've embedded the alternate ending where Scott Pilgrim ends up with Knives Chow, so if you want to see that for yourself, you can check it out there. Also got links off to Chris's last two appearances on the podcast, so that's episode 63, where we talked about The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, as well as episode 71, where we talked about Star Wars, The Force Awakens. And finally, I've included Netflix and Amazon links for all the other media that we talked about, like Arrested Development, BoJack Horseman, The Flintstones and the WWE Stone Age Smackdown, Little Evil, Mystery Science Theater 3000 The Return, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, and That 70s Show. So if you want to check out any of those movies and series, I've tried to make it as easy as possible for you. You can find Netflix on all sorts of social media platforms. Really, it's just two, but I like to sound fancy. We're on Facebook as Netflix and Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore. I think I lied a little bit earlier because we're also on SoundCloud, so that's more than two. We're there as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd, which is a movie-watching diary social platform thing, and I'm there as Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support what we do here, there are a few ways you can do so. You can start by heading over to iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you prefer, and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you. While you're there, you can drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. Even more importantly, be sure to tell your friends about what we're doing here. You can also, if you want to be a super special, awesome mega fan, you can contribute directly and financially to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Patreon is a monthly subscription patronage service where you, you can make a contribution of as little as $1 a month. And in return, you can get rewards or you can just feel good about helping your favorite projects do what they do. If you want to pledge your support for us, you can head over to patreon.com and search for Netflix. Or you can hit the support Netflix button at the top of our website, netflix.ca. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by yours truly, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast. And be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole other movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.